Amen. Well, if you would, please take your seats and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos and chapter 2. And the Word of God open. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, great and everlasting God, we come this evening to read and mark and learn and inwardly digest your word. And we pray, Father, for grace to stay close unto thy law, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And pray, O God, that you would teach us and lead us as sinners in your way, O Lord, for you are good and upright and rich in mercy and compassion, and near to all who call upon you, who call upon you in truth. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember Amos, as a southern boy from Judah, a farmer, a shepherd, and he's called by God to go north to the northern kingdom. This is the years, you remember, after the split in the times of Rehoboam. Uh, it's now, what, almost 200 years after that, and the northern kingdom is rapidly descending into idolatrous chaos. The southern kingdom is following them, but more slowly and he is ministering just before the days of Isaiah. Isaiah preached at 740 B.C. when Uzziah the king died. Amos is uh, preaching uh, during Uzziah's reign, probably around 760 B.C. Remember, the numbers get smaller as you go forward before Christ. And he's been preaching this opening salvo. You remember, he calls the world to judgment as he begins to circle in. If you, if you plotted a map these nations, he's going around in a circular pattern like a, a motorman finding range, walking the shells in to its intended target. And I'm sure Israel in the north and Judah in the south were listening with some gladness as Amos is decimating their political enemies round about. Well, this evening and next week, we'll see these words become just a little bit closer to home. Listen to the Word of God, Amos chapter 2 and verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire, a fire upon Judah, and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, it was January the um, in 2013, and Sabine Moreau, a 67-year-old Belgian woman, left home 
and was driving to pick up a friend in Brussels, which is about 90 miles away from her home, so a fairly short jaunt. Unfortunately, however, because her GPS was giving her faulty instructions, she ended up driving all the way to Croatia, which is over a thousand miles in the wrong direction. The journey took her across five international borders. She stopped several times to get gas and take naps, but she kept pressing onward until she hit Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. After a few days, her son got worried and called the police, who located Sabine by following her bank statements. She told a local Belgian reporter when she got home, I was distracted, so I kept going. I saw all kinds of signs, first in French, then in German, and finally in Croatian. But I continued driving because I was distracted. When I passed Zagreb, I told myself I should really turn round. <laughs> How did that happen? It happened because she listened to the wrong instructions. And here we see Judah, the faithful nation to the south of Israel. And she's been called to the mat by God. Just like the pagan nations around her, her transgressions are mounting up. God held them, though, to the standard of conscience. He holds His people to a different standard, the standard of His revealed law. And Judah have wandered far away from God. And how did it begin? It's really a three-step process. Uh, Amos starts with the fruit and then he goes back to the root, and then he ends with the harvest. First of all, um, let's think about the, the root issue. The root issue. He says, well, we'll read the passage again. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment of Judah. And here's the fruit. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes. And then here's the root. But their lies have led them astray those after which their fathers walked. Here's the harvest. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Just like uh, Mrs. Moreau, Judah got off track because they listened to the wrong uh, directions. Their lies have led them astray, Amos says. That's where things began to go wrong. Their lies have led them astray. Now, these lies, you've got to understand, these lies, um, he's not so much speaking about rational ideas, although every lie comes as a rational idea. But a lie in the Old Testament is, is often spoken of as another word for an idol, because an idol is a lie. The whole thing itself is a lie, as if there could be a, a, another God, another reason to live, another voice to follow, another gospel to embrace. So, you'll see that regularly in Scripture in, in Jeremiah 16. And if you turn there a second, actually, Jeremiah 16, it's, it's even more clear in the ESV, the New American Standard in my notes, but Jeremiah 16, just to show you three passages here. Jeremiah 16, 19 to 20. And in particular, the second half of the verse. 
our fathers, verse 19b, have inherited nothing but lies. So, we actually go back to verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the end of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods such as are not gods? So, you see here, He's speaking of a time when Israel will come to their senses, and they will come before God, and they will worship and take refuge in the true God. And in that moment of repentance, as they're turning toward the true God, they will confess all of the lies they believed in the past. Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. What are those worthless things? The next verse, can man make for himself gods such as are not gods? These gods are no gods at all. They're idols. They're emptiness. They are the epitome, the incarnation of a lie. See, the same thing if you turn in in, uh, Psalm 24. So, Psalm 24 is that famous psalm that speaks to us of the righteous life. We said this morning, these psalms often speak as if there only ever would be one righteous man. And, of course, they were right. That righteous man is is Jesus. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, begins with His great God. And it wonders, who can have fellowship with this God? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? Who can stand in the presence of Almighty God? And the psalmist says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, inwardly clean. So, outwardly clean his hands, inwardly clean his heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Notice, he's lifting up his soul, which is a posture of worship, and lifting up his soul to what is false, to what is a lie, in other words, that Hebrew word. A different Hebrew word, but it's the same idea. Lifting up your soul to anything but God is lifting up your soul to an idol, right? An act of worship. And then if you turn forward to the New Testament and Romans 1, of course, that famous passage that speaks about atheists who do not believe in God, but God very much does believe in them, that, or rather, God does not believe in atheists, the famous book by um, John Blanchard, does God believe in atheists? No, he doesn't, because there's no such thing. And you remember the famous argument um, in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? They suppress the truth. Remember that. How do they suppress the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them, it's manifest to them, because God has shown it to them. God has taught every man on the earth His truth, not just truth in general, but truth in particular about God. But they suppress that truth. They deny that truth. They reject that truth. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 
remember I was just talking recently to a good friend of mine who had lunch together, and we were chatting, and he was telling me he doesn't believe in prophetic words from God that ceased in the Old Testament, right? That's not to say God sometimes can't step into your life and give impressions and so forth, and even a word, right, that comes in that is in accordance with Scripture. And he was sitting one night on his vacation, he said, some years ago, many years ago, actually, and he's sitting on the beach, couldn't sleep that night, went for a walk on the beach, sat on the beach, and looked up at the heavens. It was in the middle of the night, and he heard a voice. He said, it, was, it was a thought in my mind, he said, but it wasn't my thought. It was the weirdest thing. And it was this, I am bigger than the blocks on a printed page. And this friend of mine is a deeply intellectual man, loves to read and think, and it just it blew his preconceived notions of God, you know, that we can limit God. We think because we've read about God in the Bible that we, think we can get a handle on God and know Him exhaustively. And he felt small. And then he heard this voice again that was in his thoughts, but not his thoughts. Watch what I can do. And in that moment, the sun came above the horizon, and the, col- the myriad colors across the sky were just painted across the sky, and his glorious sunrise, and it blew his mind, right? He, just, he was just like, oh my. It just was one of those experiences of God, and we all have those times as Christians, and they can be few and far between when God just comes down in a spectacular way and impresses Himself upon us. And Paul is saying, essentially, all men looking at the heavens have that sense that somebody very big and very wise and very invisible is responsible for all of the things we can see. And yet, Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile, empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul's saying, right, that one of the moves we make as sinners is we turn away from the true God and we tend to worship something else as God, something so big and so good that we think it'll make us happy forever. And that's generally something down here in creation. Therefore, Paul says, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, notice, the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Notice the connection. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator forever. And so Amos is essentially saying the same thing, that Judah, the covenant people of God, were led astray by lies. And lies in biblical language, Old Testament, New Testament, are inextricably linked to idols. Lies lead us away from the true worship of the true God, and they lead us to the false worship of false gods. But they are emptiness, and those who become like those who worship them, the psalmist says, become like them. Tim Chester, in a book that I'm reading called You Can Change, and so far it's been very good, and I expect it'll stay that way. Tim's a good man from Britain. Tim Chester says, behind every sin is a lie. The root of all our behavior and emotions is the heart, what it trusts and what it treasures. 
People are given over to sinful desires because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. We sin, he says, because we believe the lie that we are better off without God, that His rule is oppressive, and that we will be free without Him, that sin offers us more than God. A better life without God, we said this morning. Same kind of thing Tim Chester's speaking about here. So, what lies do our idols whisper to us? Well, they tell us essentially three lies. The first is, I can give you satisfaction. Mick Jagger was wrong. Can't get no satisfaction. Your idols tell you, listen to me and all will be well with your soul. Worship the God of sex, our idols say. Watch pornography. Make love beyond the bounds of marriage. Make up all the rules yourself as you go along, and you'll find joy. But there's no joy behind the God of the Bible. He's the he's designer of sex, the maker of sex, and you, you take His gift and use it the wrong way, and there'll be tears before it's all said and done. You'll just find that your sexual encounters become cheaper and less meaningful and less satisfaction, less satisfying. And then when you finally find a woman or a man to settle down with, there'll not be that same bond that connects you to them that God intended. But the God of sex will say, oh no, follow God's rules and you'll be missing out. Maybe God's word to you this evening is, if you believe that, your lies have led you astray. Your lies led you astray this evening? Or the money. Worship the God of money, the almighty dollar. As J.I. Packer says, sex and shekels always made the world go round, and it did at least for Israel in the Old Testament. Worship the God of money. And there's two types of people who worship the God of money, the spenders and the savers. Spenders think they are buying life when they make a purchase. And savers think they are securing their lives when they don't. And they often marry one another. <laughs> Which leads them to my office, predictably. <laughs> but the problem is both look for, to money as a tool to give them what only God can, satisfaction. Sinclair Ferguson says, our problem is we think with our feelings. If it feels good, it must be good. Or even worse, if I think it'll feel good, then it must be good. How many, how many teenage boys believe the idea that if they, if they masturbate, it'll feel good and it'll be good, and yet every time they finish, they feel all shame and guilt and appalled inside, and yet they go back to the same old broken cistern again and again and again and again and again and again and again, and they know it won't satisfy them, but they keep on going back to it. And God says, your lies have led you astray. Or idols tell us, I can give you satisfaction. A second lie idols tell us is, I can keep you safe. So you worship the God of popularity, for example. 
And the God of popularity says, don't rock the boat. You're at school, you're at college, you're in the workplace. Don't let anyone know you're a Christian. You'll just expose yourself to unnecessary trouble. Just fly under the radar. And then when your boss expects you to work all the hours God sends, just um, do what he says. Because life is found, safety is found by pleasing your boss. And then when your boss says, break the rules a little bit, fudge the expense report so the people in the higher office will be happy. Yes, sir. That's the way to safety. Or maybe it's in your marriage, and you worship the God of popularity, and, and the, 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 the God of popularity says, whatever Schwimba says, do it. No Schwimba is, she who must be obeyed. I saw this on Instagram, one of those rarely insightful memes that said, how do you know what controls you? Who is the person you're not allowed to criticize? That's who controls you. And the God of popularity says to men, don't you dare criticize your wife. They'll be angry with you. And they'll have sex with you for the next two weeks. Oh, no. And, and so we sacrifice our leadership in our homes because we're, worshiping the, we're listening to the lies of the God of popularity. Do whatever I say and you'll be safe. And sometimes women can be the same. They don't ever speak to their husband about his harshness, his rudeness, because he only blew his temper and get angry. And so they, they, they never address it, because they're controlled. They're bought and sold by his smile and by his frown. I will tell you, I can give you satisfaction. I can keep you safe. Also, I can make you something. You worship the God of reputation. And the God of reputation says, what people think of your children matters. And so if they let you down in public, people will think you're a bad parent. And therefore, you must seek to control your children at every moment so that they'll never let you down in public because life is found when your children are good, not for goodness sake itself, so that people will then think you're a good parent. And so you worship the God of reputation and the God of control. You try to control everything about their lives. And you convince yourself it's for their spiritual welfare, but really, it's because your chief concern is that people will think you're a good parent. Or maybe you're running late to a sales meeting because you left the house late because you got up late, because you went to bed late, because you got home from work late, because you didn't get your, your work done on time, and so forth and so on, right? And, and you're late for a sales meeting. This is particularly convicting to me because I'm late for a lot of meetings. Not sales meetings so much, but all of life is sales. And so you're late, right? And you're driving on the road, and, and the person in front of you is driving at the speed limit. How dare they? Don't they know you're rushing to get there on time, you get angry, and you honk your horn, and you, you curse the person under your breath. Come on, hurry up, move on, move on, move on. And really what's controlling you is you're frightened that if you don't get to the meeting on time, you'll fall out of favor with the person you're meeting, and then they won't like you, and then that'll get back to the boss. My boss is God. That's okay. But still, other people, they'll get back to the boss. You'll not make the sale, and then you'll not get the promotion or the raise. 
and your wife will be angry, or your boss will be angry, and it's all about reputation. And so the, the, the God of reputation listens in my whispers in your ear, you listen to me, and you'll be safe, and you'll be something. And our first misstep so often is we allow ourselves to be deceived by our lusts. Where do you sin? I kept myself from my sin, the psalmist says. What, what sins would you keep yourself from if you kept yourself from your sins? And what lies do you believe when you fall into them? Paul says to the Ephesians, put off the old man who is being corrupted by the lusts of deceit, the lies your lusts tell you, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to isolate the, the lies you're believing. If you ever want to change the way you live, you must change the way you think. What lies am I believing? The person who's given to panic attacks and anxiety Lies, constant streams of lies in their mind. If this happens, then that happens. If this happens, then this will happen. And they're, they're panicking about all these might happens. And they don't lift their eyes and see the God who is, and the God who's there, and the God who controls, and the God who holds. And so they're constantly stirred up in their mind, like a mother stirring the bath to make the bath the right color for the child. They're the lies that run in their mind constantly listening to lies about providence and life and the future and themselves and the present. You're a failure. Everything you do is a failure. And, and all these thoughts go round, and, and, and they, can, they, they lead them astray. And if you want to get out of that merry-go-round, you've got to stop listening to the hand that swirls the heart, the lies that lead us astray. We only live the lie because we first believe the lie. Alec Mateer says this, In Amos' day, the people fell into the lies only when they strayed from the truth. Had they remained in the truth, they could not have fallen into the lies. Here is a very largely forgotten and yet most vital principle. In contrast, the words kept and walked Matthias says, imply the sort of life which arises out of the mental decisions which have been made. Once the truth has been despised, it is not kept in an obedient, conformed life. Once the lie has been embraced, it guides the walk, the direction which our lives take. Where are you believing the lies? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But God is faithful with the temptation to also provide the way of escape. Where in your life are you tempted not to believe that? Constant battle in our lives, truth and lie. And Judah were led astray because they let lies win out against the truth. That's the root problem. Their lies led them astray. And the fruit of that in their life, we believe the lie and disobey the truth. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes. Now, 
The, the Word of God comes to these people in two forms. It's called the law of the Lord and the statutes. And those are two different ideas. The law of the Lord is the Torah of Yahweh. And the Torah literally means to instruct. It's, it's from the Hebrew verb to shoot, yara, to fire an arrow into something. Uh, the devil fires an arrow into the heart like the arrow fired at the funeral pyre at the end of some movie in the O King Burns in the ocean. I know that because someone said that this morning at the door. They wanted to, that's the way they wanted to go. They wanted to be buried on, in the sea with the arrow fired into the pyre. But my sermon wrecked it, praise the Lord. Anyway, so, but God fires the arrow of truth into our hearts. It's the word used for fa- a father's instruction in the book of Proverbs. Remember your father's instruction, your mother's instruction. It's the, it's the loving instruction of a parent. One commentator says, the, law, the Lord's law implies His personal drawing near as teacher, and I would say also father, and the establishment of a personal relationship between Him and the one to whom He purposes to impart truth. Statutes, they are not just a father's instruction. They are an engraver's mark. It's to write something indelibly in stone. That's the idea of statute. The other word, statute, a writer says, arises from a verb meaning to carve out, to engrave. Its meaning and context is well illustrated by reference to the tables of the commandments written in rock by the finger of God. The statute is symbolic of the law of God in its aspect as unchangeable, imperishable truth. And from these two things arise the secret of the strength of the obedient life. It's a life of fellowship, relationship with the living God as Father, and it's the life resting on the rock-like foundation of the truth. Deep in our heart of hearts, we know the rules don't change. Listen to the liberals, the leftists, whining about Roe versus Wade. Fifty years of precedence, they say. Fifty years has been a right in this land for a mother to slaughter her unborn child. Fifty years. It's nothing. We've got 4,000 years and eternity of precedent in the, in the rock-like statutes of God Himself. They never change. There's relationship and there's stability in these words. And Israel, God gave Israel these precious gifts, His, His, His fatherly instruction, His unchangeable statutes. And in response, Israel rejected them. Alec here again says, rejected points to a mental state which first despises and then dismisses. First despises and then dismisses. Notice the order. We despise first and then we dismiss. That's interesting. We think it was the other way around. We think we dismiss. You know, you, you, get, you neglect your quiet time. You start not reading your Bible every day, and then gradually you learn to despise the Bible. But no, no, Matthias says the word means you despise first, and then you dismiss. I was struck that recently, but that recently, reading some brutally honest job rejection letters. Um, you despise first, then you dismiss. Sub Pop, heretofore unknown to me, was an independent record label in Seattle and sent the following rejection letter to an aspiring singer. Dear loser, thank you for sending your demo materials to Sun Pop for consideration. 
Presently, your demo package is one of a massive quantity of material we receive every day at Sub Pop World Headquarters. Your material is on its way through the great lower intestines that is the talent acquisition process. We appreciate your interest and wish you the best in your pursuit. Kind regards. P.S. This letter is also known as a rejection letter. Dear loser, they despise them first, then they dismiss them. Or another music agency called New Delta Review, a literary magazine in Baton Rouge, sorry, New Delta Review, sent the following rejection letter. Thank you for submitting your material. Unfortunately, the work you sent is quite terrible. Please forgive the form, the form rejection, but it would take too much of my time to tell you exactly how terrible it was. So again, sorry for the form letter. Now, when we hear, and I watch Britain's Got Talent and America's Got Talent, purely to hear Simon Cowell's sarcasm. It's, it's my love language. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny, right, to hear these, these kind of stars say, I'm sorry, you and your mother <laughs> think you can sing, but that's no reason why you should or that you can, so please go away. Um, we despise first and then we dismiss, right? It's one thing for Simon Cowell to treat a, a pompous young singer who thinks they can, but they can't that way. But Judah are treating God that way. Are you? You despise his word, and so you dismiss it. Is that not the reason why some of you never read your Bibles? You despise it. You'll do anything else but read your Bible. Play video games, read even a book, um, God forbid. You do anything else than read your Bibles. Is that, is that the way you treat something you treasure? That's convicting. Treat God, the God of the universe, that way. And here's Judah, the more faithful of the two parts of God's fractured kingdom, Israel in the north or even worse, but Judah in the south, the, the fruit of their life, they were led astray by lies, or the root, sorry, and the fruit, they disobeyed God's word his unchangeable word in statutes and his fatherly word in the Torah. The root and the fruit. And then you have the harvest. So, I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, that fire wouldn't come for 180 years because of God's patience. But my brothers and sisters never confuse God's patience with indifference. Just because God hasn't acted now in judgment doesn't mean that He won't. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. If you reject God, expect Him to return the favor. That's the normal response of the Almighty. 
His grace is surprising. Makes the angels gasp. But you can imagine Judah in the south and Israel in the north hearing God condemning everybody else and going, yes, let them have it. And you can imagine Israel in the north hearing God condemn Judah in the south and think, yep, let those confederates have it too. Because isn't it true, we're so often much more gifted at agreeing with God when He condemns everybody else's sin, and yet being strangely blind to His obvious condemnation of our sin as well. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. It's that worst way of reading the Bible. When we read the Bible and all of its rebukes as somebody else's problem, or to point out the sin of other people, out there, and we forget that the line of evil really does run through every single human heart. One commentator says, while Amos was thus winning his audience's attention to his message, it is probable that few of them gave attention to the fact that the review of the encircling nations was also a noose of judgment about to tighten around their own necks. Or to put it another way, sometimes we are the last ones to see our own sin. Are you wandering from God this evening? Are you drifting from Him? God's calling you home. He's calling you back. Don't be like Varag Airlines Flight 254 which was taking off of Brazil, Brazil's, Brazil's sorry, Maraba Airport on September the 3rd, 1989. Now, under normal circumstances, it was flying to nearby Belém, I think that's how you pronounce it, and the flight would only take 48 minutes, like flying from Atlanta to Greensboro, right? The problem was, rather than flying, well, the doodah where you set the course, it said the course number was 0270. Unfortunately, the pilot typed in 270. So rather than flying east toward the sea, he flew west toward the rainforest. It didn't take him long, though, to realize his mistake. Within a few minutes of the flight, he should have been able to see the Belem airport in the distance, but he couldn't. It was dark. Even the flight attendants came and warned him that there were no lights in the ground beneath. They were flying over the rainforest, not a city after all, right? And he told them that's okay. He had received, he lied to them. He said, the reason it's dark on the ground is because there's a power failure at the airport. We will circle the area and wait for power to be restored. Despite not knowing where he was, Captain Garces informed the flight coordinator of his airline that he estimated the plane would be landing in Belém in five minutes. He then ordered the flight attendants to serve a fresh round of drinks to the bewildered passengers. At 7.39 p.m., the flight was now 68 minutes late, and the first officer identified the problem to the captain 
and started to explain what had gone wrong. But the captain dismissed his explanation, refused to ask for help, and he began counting down the minutes until the plane would run out of fuel. All the while, he searched the ground, hoping against hope to find an airport where he could land the plane. About an hour later, out of fuel, Garces made a remarkable crash landing in the forest in total darkness. The plane was 700 miles from the intended destination. Although all six of the crews survived, 13 of the 48 passengers died. Both Captain Garces and the first officer had their commercial licenses revoked. They never flew again. And that reminds me, frankly, of me at times in my life, and of you at times in your life, when you go the wrong way, and you know that you're going the wrong way, and people try to warn you. Like the policeman in the M70, which is called the highway to hell in Britain, is a terrible log-jammed motorway or interstate highway that's famous for bad traffic. And one time in a dense fog, early one morning, there was an 18-wheeler jackknifed and blocked the, the, the motorway. And in the dense fog, car after car went through into the fog and, and, and crashed into this 18-wheeler. And scores of people were badly injured and killed. And the police officer at the scene knew what was happening. And he got traffic cones from off the road and began hurling them at the windscreens of drivers driving by with tears running down his face, hurling cones into the, these cars. And they sped on, cursing the police officer, wondering, what's he doing? Smack! As they too joined Christ into the, the pileup. And so often that can be like you and me. We know we're going the wrong way. We know we're doing the wrong thing, and we don't stop. Drinking too much alcohol, eating too much food, wasting too much time online. And the sins, spending too much money on silly things. And it just keeps on piling up. We're going the wrong. People try to warn us, and we skillfully avoid the warning. Oh, that's somebody else's problem. That's Judah. They even command the prophets later in the passage, stop prophesying to us. I stumbled across this little verse. I'll finish with it from Amy. Carmichael, the Ulster woman who spent her life in India rescuing girls from the sex trade there back in the 19th century. You've got the lies leading you astray. Here's the captain of your soul speaking. I am the God of the stars. They do not lose their way. Not one do I mislay. Their times are in my hand. They move at my command. I am the God of the stars. Today as yesterday, the God of thee and thine, less thine they are than mine. And shall mine go astray? I am the God of the stars. Lift up thine eyes and see as far as mortal may into eternity, and stay thy heart on me. Lift up thine eyes and see as far as mortal may into eternity, and stay thy heart on me. God's calling you back. 
calling you away from the lies that will not satisfy you, and lifting your eyes up to the God who alone can. Reorder the loves of your heart. Put first things first, and second things second, and third things third, and fourth things fourth. Without that, there'll always be chaos in your mind and chaos in your heart, chaos in your affections, chaos in your desires, chaos in your conscience, and you'll always be scratching the itch that lusts the hardest. And you'll never find any true satisfaction. The root, our lies, lead us astray. The fruit, we reject and despise God's fatherly law and God's unchangeable statutes and the, the harvest, a whirlwind of judgment. And God is saying to you this evening and to me, I'm willing to give that judgment to Jesus and give myself to you. And the angels gasp that God would make such an offer, and they gasp again to see mortals rejected. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would draw near and save people in this meeting this evening, save unbelievers from their spiritual death, and save believers, O oh God, save me, save my people from our favorite waste of time. We might give ourselves wholly, sincerely, and promptly to Thee from our hearts. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.